So what's the name of the game? It's the dopamine. Pursuit of dopamine. <laughs> the pursuit of dopamine. Or dopamine helps in pursuit, right? Yeah. In wanting. And in not just the reward itself, but in pursuit of the reward. Okay. Yeah. And that's what this book, uh, Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, really talks about. And okay. such a good book, and I recommend it. Actually, I'm going to give it to you when you leave here. You're about tomorrow. So thank you. Um, yeah, it's... I already kind of started looking into dopamine uh, prior to hearing about the book, mm-hmm. and then was introduced to it, that book specifically, and her through Dr. Andrew Huberman, who you and I watch his podcast. I think yeah. he's a legend. <laughs> and uh, so I picked it up on his recommendation, and then I started watching her on podcasts and her points of view. Cool. On dopamine, and it, yeah, it definitely added a lot of insight. Okay, cool. So dopamine helps with the pursuit of goal-oriented behavior, I guess, right? So you're like, when you're in pursuit of something you want, your brain is releasing dopamine? Is that... I don't know the whole neurochemical background of it, because mm-hmm. um, that's not like, that's not my realm. But what she theorizes in the book, and she is a Stanford... Um, professor, psychiatrist, um, and what she puts forward, a lot of other specialists put forward is that, yeah, it's, there is dopamine's role in pursuit as opposed to reward itself may be more important. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And does she, so obviously this book is dopamine finding balance in the age of indulgence. So I think like nowadays, like we see, I mean, there's so many examples of things in our environment that just trigger dopamine release. Yeah. So do you think that the more of those things there are in our environment, the less uh, energy we have, I suppose, to pursue the things we actually do want? Like, do you think that, yeah, by like constantly getting dopamine hits throughout the day, Mm -hmm. we are actually left with less dopamine to pursue like big meaningful it's funny because i think i asked myself that question maybe subconsciously before i got the book okay and that is exactly what she's talking about okay these little hits of dopamine that we get from things like social media from like chocolate or from alcohol Mm -hmm. um or from porn or from all these little things online shopping over time if you have these short-term pleasures they can lead to long-term pain Okay. Yeah, and she really dives deep into that. And it's like, it's really eye-opening because for me, I was noticing myself getting almost, it felt like into a state of like, the things that once brought me pleasure, like genuine things. Mm -hmm. So like, it's going to sound tacky, but like watching a sunrise or like having your first cup of coffee of the day, those types of things. They were lacking as, they were lacking the feel-good chemicals that I normally get from them for my whole life. And I was like, is this because I'm flooding myself constantly Mm. with other forms of pleasure and almost like cheap pleasures like Mm -hmm. social media or like, you know, countless content online going back to online a lot, but also substance too. Like it's Mm. so accessible for us to be able to get things. Like even if we're lower class on the poverty line, you can still afford things that bring you pleasure. The most part, I can't speak for everyone, of course, but, uh, pleasure is cheap, but it's cheap. Pleasure is also not long lived. And if you, one of the analogies she uses all the time in the book is the scale and a fulcrum. Okay. So if you have a scale and a fulcrum and one side has is pleasure, one side is pain, 
considering the fact that you're the region of your brain that processes pleasure, the reward pathway, mm-hmm. the limbic system, is this? Oh, it's uh, co-occurring with the, uh, or co-located, sorry, with the pain pathway. Okay. So these things work in opposite, and they have to balance each other out because homeostasis, the state of being in a state of like your body getting back to its normal functions. Like if you're cold, your body wants to warm up, vice versa. If you're stressed, mm-hmm. your body wants to calm down. You have to return to homeostasis. So if you're experiencing pleasure, that's going to tilt this scale. So you have a baseline dopamine, a tonic level dopamine in your brain mm-hmm. at all times. That baseline does change, but there is a baseline dopamine. Okay. And then there's a phasic level of dopamine, which is an increased level of dopamine. Okay. So when you do something that's pleasurable or you're seeking reward or you get the reward itself, you're changing that level. Okay. But it doesn't just go from that high back down to the tonic level. You have to have an equal and opposite amount of pain to balance it back out. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because, okay, so when I hear you say that, I'm imagining, okay, so let's take something like social media, for instance. Yeah. Um, uh, because that, I mean, that's just such an obvious example of just like, you know, you get a like on an Instagram post or something like that, and it's just, it's just a, an instant hit of dopamine. Mm-hmm. How in, how quickly after that spike in dopamine do you, will you see, like a like a drop mm-hmm. in dopamine levels, and actually it go into, okay, now you're actually in like, you're experiencing pain. Like how mm-hmm. quickly does that? That's a really good question, and that's what I wondered about because think about the first time you got you put a post up. And maybe you got a lot of likes on it or a lot of attention on it compared to if you did that every day of the week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not an influencer online, so I don't, I'm not getting 100, right. 100 maybe... likes a post. But at the same time, that does change. So your, your perception alters it and how often right. you receive it. And if you are constantly using, let's just use the analogy of social media again. If you're constantly pursuing that high, all of a sudden it's going to lose value. And you're pushing, you're adding things onto that pleasure side of that scale. To it's, make up for that. To make up for that. You keep throwing things on it and your butt, you keep wanting to go down to that. It's going to have to go back down to that pain state. So the longer you do it, it might be mm-hmm. quick. You might go on social media and use it in a healthy way, mm-hmm. which arguably there might not be, but maybe there is. There's a healthy way to use it. Yeah. Um, and then your balance back to homeostasis might be simple. You know, you, you, you have the up and then you have the down. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in a serious state. And you're constantly, you're afraid of that pain side. So as soon as you start to feel the pain, you make another post. Mm-hmm. You'll notice maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit curious to see if there's anything out there about how, if you look at the occurrence of one post online, how quickly after is there another post? And what is the duration between the two? Mm-hmm. So if you don't see a post for a long time from an individual and they post something out of the blue, is there one right after? Because maybe you are experiencing some sort of come down. Because I think the same goes for anything. Chocolate, cocaine, alcohol, sex. You have it. You come down, you want more because you want to avoid, you get that other piece of chocolate. You want to spike your dopamine because you're about to feel pain. Mm-hmm. And the more you prolong it, the longer that pain's going to last after though. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It would be, it would be interesting to, to follow that through and look at social media in, in terms of that. I think it's tricky though, because so many people are using social media with legitimate like strategies in mind, you know? So yeah. like committing to like four posts a week or like three posts a week, that kind of thing. And like sticking to that. Um, but, but that is very interesting. So what, so you mentioned there, you know, it has how much, how high the spike in dopamine is actually 
relates to your perception. I think so. Mm-hmm. She, I, I, I can't like say that that's for sure, but I think that it goes without saying in anecdotal evidence. If you are going after something and you receive it, whether it's super big goal or super small or super big pleasure or super small, the more often you do it, the less that effect is going to feel. Right. I could like I think it about I think about it with like the first time you have uh, a great meal, and you mm-hmm. go back and have it again. It might not release the same endorphins, it might not release the same amount of dopamine or other pleasure pleasure um, neurotransmitters or hormones. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think there is there probably is work out there that's going that Al's maybe already has this information, but like it's repetitive exposure to something is going to lessen your your enthusiasm towards it unless you maybe change your perception and you're able to kind of be mindful about how you're perceiving things. And that goes into right. a different tangent. But like, I think that like, it really does come down to like perspective and, uh, uh, ha- habits. So like if you were, uh, uh, drugs are kind of hard to get into, but if you were to, th- if you were to think about using that mm-hmm. in this type of like, in this topic would be the first time you, maybe not the first time you get drunk, the first couple times, and the stories, the excitement, all those things mm-hmm. are a huge part of why you go back to it. Right. But then over time, if it becomes an issue for you, you're not, you're just going towards something that you're not perceiving it the same the first time you had it. Your perception of it is completely different because now you have all these, first of all, habits in place where you might not even think about doing the act. You just go and do it. Right. Or like just literally the effects it has on your body because your body's used to processing it. Same with information, right. not just drugs, but like... Uh, first time you meet somebody, you're, you fall in love, let's just say. It's like, that is cra- a crazy feeling. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to lessen over time. You might still love the person, but that, like, first exposure to it yeah. was, like, could knock you off your feet. So I think that perception does play a huge role in it. Um, and that's why I think being mindful of your actions. If you are somebody who's prone to compulsive overconsumption, mm-hmm. which I think we all are, and that's what she's talking about, and finding balance in the age of indulgence, that we have so many things to be... In, to to indulge in, yeah. that we have to kind of step back and be like, okay, we know these things bring us pleasure, mm-hmm. but over time, uh, will it continue to bring the same pleasure? Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think expectation also plays a role in like how much pleasure you receive from a certain event? Totally. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because I think like, how you frame things. I think it's it's funny, like, the human brain, it seems to do a few things automatically that that are automatic, and we're not, we're not consciously, we're not often conscious that it's happening, but it is. And I think one of those things is obviously thinking, like, we just think we have automatic thoughts, and we're, we can't really predict what we're going to think until we're aware that we're thinking what we're thinking. Mm-hmm. And similarly... Um, one of the things our brain does automatically is seemingly try and predict future events mm-hmm. or at least I don't, and maybe at least this is how I experience. It's almost like your brain predicts a future event and how that event will impact you, how you will feel in that event. Yeah. Um, and so it's funny because I think that initial prediction, um, however consciously it happens or however conscious the experience is for you, that tends to frame um, how much pleasure you're going to feel when that event itself actually happens. I couldn't agree more. Right? Like if someone tells you, 
Like if you've never had a Mac chicken before, and this is a terrible example. A what? A McChicken. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you've never had like a McChicken before yeah. and for some reason you make it out, you see, maybe you watch a McDonald's commercial and you make it out in your mind to be holy, like this is going to change your life. Yeah. This McChicken, this, this thing is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And then you go through the drive-thru and you get your McChicken, you sit down, you unwrap it, you smell it, yeah. you eat it, and it's just kind of whatever. Dude, that's so funny how you say that. Because yeah. there's actually an example of that in the book. You just almost quoted her anecdotal evidence in the book. That's crazy. Because what it is is that, let's just say, I'm like, Sam, let's go out tonight. Let's go to this restaurant. It's called such and such. And, such, and mm -hmm. it's the best food I've ever had in my life. Yeah. And you go, okay, cool. And I'm like, okay. And then for the next hour before we get there, on the drive there, getting ready to go there, I'm talking about how great it is, about the pasta that they get there, the sauce. It's all so amazing. I'm fucking just talking and talking about it, talking, about how, yeah. talking it up. Yeah that your expectation of it is fucking huge. You're like, this thing is going to blow my mind. Yeah. And then you go there and your expectation is so high that the actual reality of the situation is lower. Right. So I think perception is a big thing. And maybe going into situations with lower expectations can improve the experience more. And that's why I think uh, authentic experiences are so important in human experience mm -hmm. because uh, you ha you're experiencing without anticipation so much. You're yes. just kind of going into a blind, which can bring a lot of joy. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of talk to talk about there, especially in terms of anticipation. Yeah. But um, two things come to mind when we when you talk about that. One is like, in some sense, we seem knowing that now. So knowing that having a high expectation of something will actually determine your perception of it once it happens. Um, knowing that, we almost because our society is so empathetic as well, right? So let's say, for example, I watch a TV show mm -hmm. and I think, I think it changes my, like it changes my life. Like mm -hmm. it's, um, I cry at the end and it's like, it's a very powerful experience for me. I want to tell other people about it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like nowadays I have to kind of consciously rein that in a little bit if I'm going to recommend it to someone. Mm -hmm. It's like, because I'm aware that I'm influencing their prediction of how that TV show yeah. will be viewed by them, right? Yeah. Like if I say, hey, man, like you got to watch the third season of True Detective. It literally changed my life. They're going to expect, well, maybe they'll be like, you know, depending on what they think of me, it might change. But yeah. if they just adopt that, if they yeah. just go into that TV show thinking, hey, this TV sh show is going to change my life because it changed my friend's life. Yeah. It could actually negatively impact them. Like me being enthusiastic about an experience someone else hasn't had yet mm -hmm. might actually negatively impact how they perceive mm -hmm. that experience themselves. I think that maybe because you're releasing dopamine and expectation, and then when you have it, you're releasing less dopamine. So mm -hmm. dopamine is really a relative thing. So dopamine is like if you, it's relative to your experiences prior or your expectations prior. Mm -hmm. So if you're expecting something to be really big and then you're going to release dopamine leading up to it, I don't know if it's actually the release of dopamine leading up to it, but. Um, I believe it is. So okay. you're actually, your, your actual release of dopamine during the reward itself is lower than the actual dopamine you're releasing on the pursuit to the reward or the expectation of the reward or the thing. So yeah, that does impact it greatly. She gets into that in the book as well. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, um, that's one of the actually bigger takeaways that I got from the book because I've had that, we've all had that experience where we recommend something and somebody has and it's not as good as we expected it to be for them or vice mm -hmm. versa we're recommended something and then we do it ourselves and the experience isn't as good and then vice versa we're not recommended we stumble upon something and it's an amazing experience because it's relative relative to your dopamine levels 
leading up to the experience and how you're viewing it in your mind. And that's what brings me to thought of like how the, the intensity of how the brain works. I mean, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah, it's almost like a form. It's interesting. And okay, so I'd be curious, does she ever talk about, you know, um, philosophical or meditative ways of ensuring that your dopamine levels are as close as possible to baseline so that no matter what novel experience you have, you, you will get the most out of it. That's really cool, man. Um, I feel like you've read the book by the way you're talking. I guess you've looked into this quite a bit, but not the book, but just in general. No, I've, the... I've heard, I've, I've been looking into dopamine for quite some time. I find it a very interesting topic, mm -hmm. but I have, no, I'd like to, I'd like to read the book for sure. Well, the reason why I say it is because if you're at a balance, like I mentioned the fulcrum and the scale earlier between pain and pleasure, mm -hmm. if you can somewhat remain balanced, you're way more sensitive to both pl pleasure and pain because you're at balance now as opposed to being tilted way to one side or the other where you're not you're kind of just like moving through the just moving through life and not experiencing it as sensitively so you're okay so you're as sensitive to both when balanced yeah but that can also be i mean there's pleasure and pain too right like pain is not a negative experience solely like they're not mutually exclusive if you look at pain and pleasure they're not always mutually exclusive and right. an example that would be spicy food mm -hmm. or like uh cold showers because right. with spicy food, you're you're enjoying it. And we were talking about this earlier during breakfast when we had some hot sauce. You could be sweating and in pain physically, but your endorphins are releasing and your pupils are dilated. You're having a good time. Yeah. Same with cold showers. <laughs> cold showers are extremely painful. It's a little bit different because it's, I don't know if it's uh, happening, co-occurring. Mm -hmm. But if you get a cold shower, for example, and she talks about this in the book, mm -hmm. I think it was in the University of Prague and it was published in the... Um, journal of Physiology, European Journal of Physiology, if you want to look that up. Um, it's this um, study on cold showers and cry uh, cryotherapy mm -hmm. and how when you're getting this cold shower, which is obviously painful if you've ever done it, um, dopamine levels increasing, baseline dopamine level, not just phasic. So your baseline dopamine, the one that's always kind of going on in your body, is raising gradually. And it continues to rise out hours after the shower now why do you think that is what is it about cold showers that i think you're experiencing pain in the moment and then you're balancing back out to pleasure after to get back to balance that's what i think it is and i think she actually mentions that in the book that that's essentially what it is that you're you're recoiling and in that recoil effect but it's, it's natural so you're recoiling in the moment so even though you're experiencing pain in the moment your dopamine's your dopamine levels are rising well i believe they took plasma they took blood from the individuals okay. and they tested the blood before and after Okay. So I think it was like after the cold shower, plasma oh, levels of dopamine okay. were so higher, 250% higher. And to give you an idea of how high that is, cocaine raises uh, plasma dopamine by 225%. So oh. cold showers raising it by 25% more. How long were they in the cold shower for? That's a great question. I don't, I don't have that information, but um, uh, they're submerging into ice baths, I think. And cold showers. Yeah. So, like, people do this all the time. And as another, she has, this book, it goes back from scientific evidence to anecdotal. Since she's a psychiatrist, she talks about all of her patients with consent, obviously. She, like, changes names and races and stuff like that. Yeah. But one of her patients, as a psychiatrist, was uh, addicted to X drug. I forget what it was. I think it was some sort of upper, though. 
And he discovered cold showers and essentially replaced his habit of drugs with cold showers. He ended up having his friends over instead of getting loaded drunk and sniffing cocaine. Him and his family would, and their friends would like do like communal cold showers and like all this kind of stuff uh, as a substitute. And he got so into it, he was doing it twice a day, 20 minutes a day kind of thing. And your dopamine will rise after that, I think. And because your your question, like, how is this happening? And is it happening at the same time? Mm -hmm. From my experience... I do the James Bond shower. I think it's called okay. the Scottish shower. Okay. I don't know. It's where you have a normal shower, and then the last bit, you crank it on cold. You crank it on See cold. See how much you yeah. can handle. I typically do it to my face and my chest because um, I believe you're most, you're the receptors for cold, uh, the most like uh, dense part of your body are in, I think, your, te- or your um, forehead, and I believe your chest. That's what I've read. So I'm just getting it right here and right here. And it's painful. It sucks. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I don't know if I hate it. It's a strong word. Yeah. But afterwards, I feel a little bit wired. And the longer I do it for, the longer I feel decent wired. afterwards. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've tried that a couple times as well, like at the end of a shower to see how long I can go for. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is a cool thing. And I think um, cold immersion and stuff like that is something I'm interested in anyway, just for its effects on, like, um, your metabolism mm-hmm. and burning fat. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, like, very cool. For sure. Like Wim Hof. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. You can kind of hack yourself into burning more fat. Well, he's probably doing it partially. I mean, the psychological effects for him must be huge too. Like, I know he experienced a lot of, a lot of pain in his life, Wim Hof. Like, okay. he lost his wife and his story. kids, I think, or his wife or something like that. So I don't want to screw it up, but it was some kind of fatal thing happened in his life. Okay, well. And he, uh, he has these philosophies that he's adopted. I don't know when or how old he was or if it was after these tragedies that happened in his life or he was kind of doing it before. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But his philosophy and perspective now is really empowering and, and, and beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of cold therapy. He does. Now, yeah. is that, does, I've never really watched a whole lot of him talking about the relationship between how he acts and his philosophies mm-hmm. and cold therapy. But I know he does it because if you watch him online, he's, he swims underneath in the frozen lakes. And just, I think every day, he starts the day by jump, jumping into freezing cold water. Yeah. Dude's a... He's an animal. That's a bit, yeah, it's a bit intense. Um, something I do want to come back there, though, before we yeah. move on, is uh, so this idea, this guy, he's addicted to some kind of drug, and he yeah. replaces it with cold shower in. Yeah. Do you think... So that that's an interesting example, because it kind of sets up this idea of, like, do you think people with serious addictions to things that are totally unhealthy, drugs, uh, unhealthy forms of sex, um, whatever it is, sugar addiction... Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they are fated to replace that addiction? That's a fucking really good question. Um, it might have like a tangent long answer. Yep. So there's addiction in my family and I believe that, um, that addictive personality trait, though it is harmful in our current age. And again, Dr. Anna Lemke talks about this in her book and I believe Huberman might talk about it too in some of his podcasts. The addictive personality trait prior to substances that were harmful drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol those substances maybe not sex but drugs and alcohol those people who had those addictive traits whether they're deficient in dopamine receptors whether they have more dopamine receptors we can get into that after people who are addicted if they have more they're they creating more dopamine do they have more receptors do they have less right um but those people might have been very valuable to the community because they're seeking out things they're craving they want things yeah and we addicts crave yeah and with modern ways of fixing that craving 
these air quotes because it's like you're not really fixing the craving. Mm-hmm. You're creating, you're making, a, you're creating a monster in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, for me, the way that I stop some of my addictive, I can only speak for myself, is that the way I stop some of my addictive traits is by filling it with other things. Is that healthy? It, I think it's healthier, possibly, but I don't know. I don't know if it's completely, um, depending on what you're replacing it with. So I replace it yeah, drinking, smoking pot, smoking cigarettes with, with running. running and exercising, eating healthy. I have to, my mind has to be on something else. Is that because I'm craving right. pleasure? I don't think so. I actually don't know if it's because I'm craving pain. So yeah, for people with addiction, do they replace their addiction with something else? Some other habit, right? Yeah, that's the question. So I think that um, from my experiences, what I see from people who are addicted and who get clean, mm-hmm. uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Don't know if that's like a. I don't know if that's like a, like a. That that runs true for everyone. Um, there is this uh, unhealthy though addiction to healthy behaviors that people can adopt too, and this is called orthorexia. Okay. So, I was uh, told I was at once. But I don't think it's true because I would I go back and forth from healthy to unhealthy in a constant pursuit of balance. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I orthorexia would be an unhealthy addiction to healthy behaviors. You've met these people before. Got to get my steps in. Got to eat this. Got like, stressing over being healthy. Now, is that healthy? That's debatable. Probably not. Interesting. But is it healthier than sniffing cocaine? Maybe we're seeing this with COVID right now. Maybe we are seeing something like that. Well, actually, yeah. that's a I can't even I can't even really say that because. I mean, the uh, the jury's still out on two, on whether or not the approaches we're taking of handling COVID are even helpful at all. So that's a slippery slope. That's a slippery slope right there. Right there. <laughs> this is a this is a topic for a different podcast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I uh, I think that replacing one addiction with another. But what comes of that? So let's say you do. Let's say you do replace one addiction with another, like yeah. an unhealthy addiction, like cocaine or or meth mm-hmm. or like drinking or or sex, like unhealthy use of sex yep. with something healthier like running or working out or meditation. Well, maybe not meditation, but working out or running or something else. You might have the realization because you're thinking clearer because you're not filled up with drugs yeah. that, oh, I have a problem and I need to talk about this. Or I need to figure this out. And that's kind of what happened with me is that like if I, when I was filling my time up with healthier things to kind of like get away from substance, Hmm. I do have some reflection because you're confronted with pain at that point. Like if you go on a long distance run, you're by yourself, you're running, you're mm-hmm. going, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't. And like you said earlier about thoughts coming in, you don't choose the thoughts coming in, but you do choose how you perceive them or at least you can choose how to perceive them. Right. Uh, when you're drunk or when you're on drugs, from my experience, it's really hard to have metacognition. Mm-hmm. You're just in it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're just in it. Yeah. I kind of want to ask you a question. You don't mind? Yeah, sure. You're a writer. Yeah. Um, you're currently in the process of writing your first book, mm-hmm. a fictional book. Yep. And I mean, I've been reading your writing since you've, not since you've started, but since you've really started taking it seriously, at least, um, since you're like post-secondary years. And I've watched you transition from just your skill, just getting better and better each, each year. Okay. Um, Thank you. But do you use goal setting and with that dopamine mm-hmm. in the pursuit of writing? and getting your ideas and how you, not your ideas, but your, um, to get your ass in the chair, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, right, like, it's an interesting, it's a, it's an interesting topic because, especially following what we're just talking about, because 
So I'll just take a step back and get into it. I was going to ask, you know, okay, so we were talking about replacing unhealthy behaviors. Let's say your unhealthy behavior is drinking. You're going to replace it with a healthy behavior like running. So I was going to ask, I mean, I'm curious about like, what is it about the healthy behavior? Like, what are the requirements of the healthy behavior other than that they spike dopamine for, um, for that activity to be the right activity for the individual? Do you understand what I'm, what I mean? So like, because for me, um, so writing, for instance, um, I think absolutely there is goal setting and there's dopamine involved in mm-hmm. the day to day, like pursuit of, of of that, like, um, and spe- and especially in terms of like a long term project, like a book, like, um, you really can't write a book in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you. Uh, it's something that you really kind of need to break down and um, exert some patience with. Like you have to, yeah, you kind of have to, yeah, you have to take it day by day. Um, finding reasons to get down to that chair, like finding reasons to actually put the work in. Um, not necessarily even finding reasons to put the work in, but just being able to put the work in consistently over time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it will never get done. Yeah. I think, I think the key, the, the key thing there is work over time. Yeah. Right. Like work over a serious amount of time. Yeah. Um, but for me, writing is not something that like, yes, obviously doing that spikes my dopamine and there is, there is that involved. But if I were to tell you why writing is that for me. I don't really know why. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, I started doing it at a very young age. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those things that I just started doing. Like, it was, it was weird. Like, you know, like as a kid, like, like when I was in grade one and stuff, I'd, like, I'd make my own comic books and bring them into the classroom, you know, and, hmm. um, and and get my friends to like try and read them and stuff. And like, um, so, I don't know what it was. About about it that initially attracted me to it I just was attracted to it and I I began pursuing it um so but yeah long story short absolutely there is goal setting involved especially as an adult because there's just so many other uh, factors at play as an adult you know what I mean you yeah. have to take care of yourself you have to you have a job that you <clears throat> or you either you know maybe you don't have a job but you want a job maybe you in school or something like any long-term creative project as an adult requires mm-hmm. planning and execution if not on a daily level then um on some sort of consistent basis so you, you sure. were saying what's driving you besides the actual the dopamine least to feel good about doing the doing yeah, the actual so act and why is it different for different people exactly so what so why is it cold showers mm-hmm. for this guy yeah you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i think like i know i just didn't answer this question for myself like i said i don't know why it is writing for me mm-hmm. but that is also why it is writing for me mm-hmm. like you don't do you don't know what what I mean? saying. so like yeah. so why is it cold showers for yeah. this guy why is it running for you yeah. like why is it you know what I mean? well firstly i think cold showers is more ubiquitous i think that like it's like doing meth and i say that because in the book right. she talks about meth because meth um actually releases dopamine by a thousand percent Whoa. Yeah, that's why it's so addictive. Like Whoa. cocaine, 225%. Uh, sex, around 100%. Chocolate, around 25 to 50%. Wow. Methamphetamine, 1,000%. And what happens with methamphetamines is that, and we'll get back to what we're talking about in a second, but it's like you, you there's chemicals that are actually not only 
increasing the amount of dopamine being released by your neurons in the synaptic cleft. Mm -hmm. So in the space between the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron. So dopamine gets shot through and it is received to the receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. Mm -hmm. Methamphetamines increase the amount of dopamine that comes out, but they also have chemicals, which I have no idea what about. I'm not a chemist, by the way. I'm not a, I don't know any of these answers, but uh, I watch YouTube videos and I read books. <laughs> and uh, these chemicals though also, after the dopamine is on the receptor, yep. from what I've read is that it actually goes back into the presynaptic neuron. Okay. So it's actually reused. But what some of the chemicals in meth does is that it, you have transport proteins that are on the ends of uh, presynaptic neurons, which uptake that dopamine again. Okay. Gets blocked. So the dopamine's still in that presynaptic cleft or on the actual receptors. So if you've ever done drugs, if you've ever done stimulants, you know this feeling is that like it's euphoria and it's long lived. Like if you're ever done like ecstasy or MDMA or, or meth or whatever, you aren't just like, oh, I feel good for a split second, like you do for some other things or for like five minutes. Mm -hmm. You might feel good for like four hours. You might feel really good for like four or five hours because your your dopamine is not being taken back up and the feeling goes away. It's staying there. That's interesting. And it's also being pumped out more and more and more. So I think, but I just kind of went on a side tangent, but what brings out what, um, like what uh, is uh, the release of dopamine for you, like running or... Or writing like what yeah, is what your... is it a, what else is it about the activity aside from the spike in dopamine i think it's i think it has to just do with personality in my opinion i think mm -hmm. that like i think that we all are we all have a specific uh set of skills specific set of skills rather when we are born and then we obtain more through our practices like if we're really diligent and we study all the way through school and we're raised to be doctors we're probably going to become doctors are we going to enjoy that? Some people are going to, and some people are not. Mm. Uh, or athletes, for that example. Are you going to have a strong build as you're born, uh, like when you're not when you're born, <laughs> muscular baby, or like like are you going to be are you going to have a genetic predisposition to uh, muscle mass? Interesting. And then will you enjoy that as well? Yeah. Yours is obviously writing. You were introduced. Your father's a writer. Yeah. And that's like in your life. If he wasn't a writer, would you be a writer today? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. It's right? a good. It's a really. It's a really great point. It's like it's kind of like that. Uh, saying you know i think it was there was like a running coach or something where it's like from the coach perspective it's like you can make an athlete faster you can't make them fast hmm. like some people are just fast mm -hmm. those are the runners like those are the sprinters yeah. let's yeah. make them faster let's make them as fast as possible yeah but that initial base that yeah. initial genetic predis predisposition to something you can't you can't just give to someone i have right? a good analogy of this yeah. My dad's friend would run every day at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Healthy, fit guy, uh, salt of the earth kind of kind of fella. Yeah. And uh, he would get up in the morning and run ostensibly because it's healthy. And you know, you're looking at the guy; he's a healthy guy. He runs, he plays hockey, you know, whatever. My dad walks in the office one day. He said, "What'd you do this morning?" He said, "I went for a jog at five a.m. with the with the missus, with the lady." And he's like, "Say, how how do you do that? Like, do you do you enjoy it?" He looked at him right, my dad, right? He looked my dad in the eyes and said, I hate every fucking minute of it. And this guy later ended up, anyways, I won't get into that, but um, <laughs> that's doing something that is apparently good for you. Maybe you like it, maybe you're good at it, maybe you're not, maybe you're not enjoying it at all. Maybe when you go to sit down and write for eight hours of the day, you're not enjoying it. You're in, you're anxious. You're not saying this is you, but like that mm -hmm. might be your pursuit. And then you might actually make a really good book out of it. And that might bring you a lot of joy. 
and mm. encourage you to get back and go through that pain again. Like I imagine when you sit down to write, I'm sure you get a lot of joy out of it, but I imagine there's some intense frustration at times. I imagine there's a mix of emotions. Like if you're stuck on a character development or if you're, your perception is going to be, right. it's a, it's not just one solid thing. And that's why I think what dopamine is important that we're complex beings. Our emotions are complex. Yeah. So we, we trend like I, I love studying nutrition. I love cooking food. Mm -hmm. I love it every time I do it. No, certainly not. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point. Um, and I've experienced that for sure. I mean, physical exercises like that. I mean, like mm. I can think about, you know, s sessions at the, at the gym or like days you go to run and you're fighting yourself to get through it. Like it's not a pleasurable experience to be running or to be in this moment in the workout where you're absolutely gassed out of your mind. Uh, I'll give you an example. I went to a jujitsu class for the first time in three years, a few weeks ago, and, um, was so unbelievably gassed, like was probably the most gassed I've ever been in my life. Um, it felt like, you know, like that sport specific cardio that I had built up to some degree was completely gone mm. and getting back on the mats and rolling competitively just pushed me to a level where it was not fun at all. But then after having gone through that, like after the class, like when I was alone sitting in the car afterwards, and in the days following, that's when I kind of felt like I got the reward. Like, oh, like, I'm actually back on track in an area in my life that I actually value. Hmm. And that pain was temporary and it's gone now. And it was a worthwhile experience. It was meaningful and I still learned some things. So it's the bigger you know, picture. Because it's it bigger wasn't picture. in that moment when you're at jiu-jitsu class, it wasn't necessarily like, this is the best time of my life. No, it was the opposite, actually. It's probably quite painful and you were exhausted. Exactly. And it was challenging. And that that's also... a um, Something as well with all these things we're talking about, running, writing, jujitsu, um, being in a cold shower. Yeah. They're intense to the point where you can't be anywhere else but in the present moment. That's so true. That right. is, that I think it's the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. Because when you're forced to be in the present moment, no one ever said the present moment's going to be good. It might be shit. Yeah. But if you're forced to be there, there is some sort of authenticity to it. Mm -hmm. And I think we lack authenticity in 2022. Yeah. Um, and I say that because experiences, um, first of all, we're so we're exposed to so much information. So yeah. that, like to find something new is difficult, mm -hmm. even if it's new to you. Yeah. It's almost like a lived, it's almost like a hive mind lived experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's the bigger picture of like, why am I doing this thing? Like, why am I, why am I going to jujitsu and beating myself up? Well, it's because afterwards I felt a, a feeling of. Uh, you know, commitment, uh, well, physically I felt better. Um, uh, there was pain in the moment, but that was, uh, I have, I have, I'm reflecting on that now and that's important. Mm -hmm. I'm re I'm reliving the experience in my brain. There's all these added levels of benefits, I think, to those experiences, lived experiences, like present moments, yeah. mindfulness that are irreplaceable in life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's so I want to come back to something you asked me. You asked me about um, is dopamine involved in the writing process, and this I think it absolutely is. And I think uh, you said you mentioned something just then that I want to kind of go into where it's like so the um, the the processes involved in, in writing a book, let's say, because uh, there are multiple different things that you kind of need to do. Like you can't just like writing a book is not just writing, right? It's not just generating text. Okay. It's, um, 
if you think about it, I mean, a novel is like 65,000 words long. Um, in order to get there, people tend to differ. You know, some people, I think, bang out a rough draft that is sh shy of that mm -hmm. word count and then edit and revise and through revision get up, build more text. Yeah. Some people probably write way more than 65,000 words from the get-go and mm. then pare all that stuff down. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but long story short, as you're, as you're writing over time, you're also editing and organizing and revising and kind of thinking consciously about what you're doing, thinking consciously about the characters you're writing about, abstracting the characters from the scenes themselves, writing them on the page, doing mm -hmm. backstory, a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. There are elements to the book writing process that are not fun at all. Yeah. You know, and that are actually kind of feels like, well, like I wish I didn't have to do this. Like for example, I write longhand and writing longhand and I actually limit the amount of time I have to do it. So I might first thing in the morning, just to get something done, I'll limit myself to 15 minutes mm -hmm. of just writing pure longhand. And I'm pretty much, I'm going to write that entire 15 minutes and maybe get somewhere between like, I don't know, like 350 to 500 words out. Okay. Okay. So that's not bad for 15 minutes. I guess you're... it's not, it's not bad. Um, but so that would be one process of writing a book. Like if you take that as a process and you do it every day, yeah, that's your that's your generation phase. So that that process is for me absolutely uh, pleasurable. I always enjoy it. It's it's uh, it's not difficult to get me to start doing something like that. Yeah, but there are processes involved where they are painful. Now, I think in order to follow through on a project like that, in order to become consciously aware of the the things that you are doing that contribute to the, the book in totality that actually give you pleasure. If you're going to harness dopamine to, to set your goals in terms of writing, you want to find those processes that do give you pleasure and try and repeat them as consistently as possible. So mm -hmm. that, so for example, that's interesting. Yeah. So like, and maybe even do them first, or maybe, I don't know. I'd like to get your thought on that. Yeah. So like, so writing the book, for example, right now, I'm writing longhand, but then there has to come a time where I transcribe that longhand mm -hmm. into the digital version, which can be edited. Mm -hmm. And that transcription process for me is often painstaking. I often don't like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. That's something I have to force myself to get through. It's the generating of the text that is easy. That comes kind of natural for me. Yeah. So it's, it's trying to find a balance between those two things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not just... I mean, I could, I guess, hypothetically hire someone to transcribe it all, but it's like, I'm not going to do that. Um, I have to do it myself. So, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's, but there's also the reason why you do it yourself is probably because you might see something and go, Hey, this is, this is not what I want. I'm going to change this now, as opposed to somebody else doing it. You're, you're losing one opportunity to see either a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. 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 And I, I think like by transcribing it, you're seeing it objectively as well. You're thinking about it again. Yeah. You're being reminded of what you wrote. Um, yeah, because when you're writing quickly like that and you're doing it often, like if you write something, you can easily forget about it, you know. Oh, sometimes I look back at my writing, like when I do just like journaling or something. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that's nice. Sometimes I'm like, what, what the fuck was I saying? What's going on here? Yeah. And to get back to what you were saying about some of it being pleasurable and some of it not, I think it goes back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about relative. So mm -hmm. you don't mean it works relative to your experiences prior. 
Yes. So if you're going into it and you are knowing that X is a fun part, writing longhand and just being creative and kind of just like spewing everything onto a page, mm -hmm. your creative mind is going, you know it's a good thing. And then you also know, because you've done it before, that tr transcribing it onto the page, onto typing it, mm -hmm. is not a fun thing. So you're already dreading it and you're looking forward to things you're already dreading them. So it really does come down to mindfulness, yeah. I think. And it really comes down to, but also not overthinking the process <clears throat> either because yeah. there is beauty that comes in the spontaneity. Yeah. I also think it's important. I think you're absolutely right. It comes down to mindset and your perception of these things. Something I always try to get back to is like having, so let's say the goal is to write a 65,000 word novel, yeah. right? In, in a set amount of time, maybe you give yourself a year to do it. You want to find like, three to five processes that you can do more or less daily that are going to contribute to the completion of that larger goal. So structure for the goal. Yeah. Exactly. And then, but by committing to those processes, you're telling yourself that those are the things you have to do to get closer to the goal anyway. Yeah. So even though I don't like the, the experience of transcribing something, I know that in the long run, if I just get through it, it's helping me get closer to that larger goal. 100%. Yeah. Well, it's what gets you through the hard times, and it's what dopamine. I think going into um, wanting versus uh, receiving. Mm -hmm. So, like the the path towards getting the item itself, finishing the book, getting your going to your publisher and getting it done. The path yeah. towards that, which seems amazing in your mind right now, I almost seen a smile come on your lips when I said publishing. Like, I think thinking about the reward itself, which is the most you know, finishing the race or whatever it is, yeah. gives you that feeling of like angsty jubilation. It's like you, for me at least, if I have a big run coming up. And I'm like, okay, I want to, it's in a month. So that month leading up to it, I have like this feeling of like tense happiness. Like I want to mm -hmm. get it. I'm out there running in that late at night. I'm going through the, getting the kilometers in, right. feeling motivated, doing it. And then there's the moments where you don't want to get out of bed and go after it, but you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Those actually add to the, add to your, your perception of yourself, how strong you are. So would you think that's an example of the pursuit of the goal being more pleasurable than the completion of the goal itself. I yeah, I do think so. Because would you even do the task if it wasn't for dopamine? And there's another good study they did that she talks about in the book, and that's with mice. The genetically engineered mice, this is the whole wanting versus getting thing mm -hmm. when dopamine is released and what dopamine is so useful for. Yeah. If you think about our human brains, like when we were, we have the same, like our mesolimbic system is the same as reptiles. Okay. So we haven't really changed much in that stage. We've added things on our prefrontal cortex, our rational brains. We that's why we can write books and have podcasts, yeah, and fucking do some weird shit. <laughs> but like um, this, this part, this reward system is the same. I want to eat. I want to fuck. I want to sleep. Yeah. I want to shelter. I want to reproduce. Whatever you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and those those uh, those attributes are the same. So I think that like. Dopamine came really handy in saying, get up and go get it. Get up and go get it. If you're thirsty, go up and find water. If you're hungry, go up and find food. If you want a mate and have children, you need, a, you, need to get a, you need to find a mate. And how do you get a mate? Well, you make yourself, you know, make yourself available for that. Mm -hmm. And the experiment with the mice was that they genetically engineered, engineered mice to, so they couldn't produce dopamine. Yeah. So, which is crazy to think about in the first place. So they that had these mice. Crazy. And they would starve to death, even if you put the food inches from their face. 
They wouldn't go up and get it. They had no drive. They would literally starve to death when you remove dopamine from their brain genetically. Engineering is the produced dopamine. They wouldn't get food inches from their face. Yet, when they took the food and put it in their mouth, they chewed it, swallowed it, and seemed to enjoy it. So you are still doing, you still get the reward. You're wow. doing it without dopamine. You're enjoying it. Wow, okay. But you're so, not going to get it. Okay, so, okay. I mean, I just had a weird question in my mind. It's so general that it's not even really appropriate we'll to ask. But I mean, like, does that describe human laziness? How so? Because late, I mean, like, I might, I mean, like, maybe this is a weird definition of it or something. I'm not sure, but like, Laziness to me is like the lack of drive, right? It's the lack of wanting to okay, get up okay, and yeah, do something saying. meaningful, yeah. to yeah. pursue something. Sure. Right? And you're just so lazy, you're just lying on the couch. But if we were lazy, um, I mean, even 200 years ago, or depending on your certain your certain circumstances now, I mean, I'm, I'm in Western society, and I got some white privilege. Like, I could be lazy and still make it. Yeah. Um, but if, if you were lazy, you know, in the age of the saber-toothed tiger, and you had to go collect your own food... You, yeah. you were done for. You didn't make it to the gene pool. Right. Your kids did. But right. if you're, you can be lazy now. And yeah, I think that not having drive and maybe because of technology, maybe because of all this like indulgence that we have, we're losing drive. We're, we're using up our dopamine on useless things. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to meaningful things in life, the things that make you want to get up in the morning and go get it, yep. you don't have it any longer because you've used it up on nonsense. Right. And on these things that aren't benefiting your life or making your life worth living. And there's a great definition that Dr. Andrew Huberman has for addiction, and it's the progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. Mm. And I think that can be said for a lot of things, a lot of uh, substance and just like behaviors in our life, is that if you have an addictive personality towards that substance or that behavior, yeah. you are progressively narrowing those things, that other things that bring you pleasure. And arguably what a good life is, also what Dr. Andrew Huberman says is that possibly it's the expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. So being maybe going back to that whole balance thing, like being able to be sensitive to things that are around you. Because I find for myself, if I go a couple of weeks without using these forms of dopamine, yes, then I am more sensitive to the beauty in the world. Like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever went a couple of days kind of unplugged or off of if you smoke pot or if you drink and you stop for a little bit. So not, you could be almost brought to tears by the beauty of the natural world and the awe of it. But if you're so consumed in technology and your face is in a laptop four days in a row and you go outside, you could care less. Or maybe you're just not driven enough. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, that's a powerful definition of addiction, man. Because it's like the progressive narrowing of the things that give you pleasure. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like losing the ability to see certain colors.
So dopamine and laziness or dopamine and not going out and getting it. Uh, one thing of that would be would be the relative dopamine too. So like if you were to do, let's just say if you if you compared it to a drug. So yep. if you did a, uh, like meth or coke. Yeah. Um, the reason why other things aren't bringing you pleasure anymore, like the uh, addiction kind of narrowing the things that bring you pleasure, mm -hmm. will be that it's relative. So the amount of dopamine you're releasing on meth or coke or even other experiences like skydiving or whatever, you, whatever you're into, mm -hmm. relative to like normal dopamine release, it's yeah. going to be like nothing. So other things aren't going to bring you as much joy. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's kind of one of the dangers of... It's, it's, it's kind of ironic and these two ideas are not necessarily compatible in some ways but it's like as our home environments get safer and safer and as the dopamine triggers in our home environments become more um present and there's there's more variety in them yeah it's almost like the home the really the idea of the really safe home environment you got yeah. netflix on the tv yeah you got a smartphone right next to you that's giving yeah. you updates every two seconds yeah you got sugar and salt in the yeah. In the cupboards. You got alcohol in the fridge. Yeah. Maybe you can you have some legalized marijuana. Perhaps. It's like that home environment that is supposed to be really safe and nurturing mm -hmm. is now domesticating you. 100%. It's now getting you to the point where you can spike your dopamine on the couch with a hand in, hands in the chocolate and another hand on a bottle of beer and another, you know, checking your smartphone every so often. There's no reason to go outside and... Is that leading towards uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra's The Lost Man? Because, I mean, you have the person who leaves the discomfort and finds warmth and has their little pleasures in the day and their little pleasures at night, and they don't see the great pleasures and the great wonderment of the world, where that can lead us as a civilization. I mean, that's kind of why these books intrigue me so much, because I wonder what it means, not only for now, with these, you know, the indulgence that we have, mm -hmm. but 10 years from now, five years from now. Two years now. I mean, look already where where we are. I mean, families are split up, splitting apart. Uh, people are becoming less driven. It seems like in general. I mean, obviously there's amazing things still being done. I don't want to be misanthropic or like dooms, all doom and gloom. But yeah, no, I uh, I I don't think it's healthy to have all these things and always have comfort. If you always have comfort, you don't have, you don't understand what true pain can be like, and also you don't have that like that relative mindset. And uh, I think you're less. There's certainly so much that I need to learn about it. And like how I can grow as an individual because I fall into the traps constantly of, um, yeah, indulgence. Right. Um, so dopamine and food. Mm. So you're a chef and you're also into nutrition. Like you're studying holistic nutrition. You are, you are planning on integrating those two things and <clears throat> stepping out into the world as an entrepreneur within the next few years, right? Yeah. So what, like... What are what's your take on dopamine and food? Um, and are as a nutritionist, are there certain foods that we should avoid? I love that question. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. So uh, your gut, first of all, which you're really interested into, like your gut microbiome, yeah, uh, plays a huge role in mental health. And dopamine, serotonin, gamma amino, butyric acid, all these things are. What's going on in the gut does affect them. I mean, precursors to, to these neurotransmitters and hormones, whatever's going on, it's creating your perspective and your emotions. 
has a lot to do with the gut. The science is still kind of shaky in there, but they do know that there's a big relationship between. That's why it's called the second brain. Your 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 intestinal tract is called the second brain, mm-hmm. and there's this thing called the vagus nerve, which goes from your brain to your gut, okay. and they actually communicate back and forth, not just one way. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I think there's a huge relationship between food and dopamine because, uh, well, first of all, dopamine, uh, the one of the precursors to dopamine is tyrosine, which is an amino acid, which is made from phenylalanine. Which is, an, which is an essential amino acid. So tyrosine our body makes, mm-hmm. phenylalanine uh, our bodies takes in, usually from animal products like meat okay. or dairy products. You can also get it from like oats in the lesser amounts and like wheat germ, you can get phenylalanine. Can you get it from sesame seeds? Uh, I would imagine there's probably small amounts. It's in a lot okay. of food. Like it is present, but I know for sure it's high in meats, dairy products. Okay. And it's also in wheat germ and oats, like I said. Okay. But... Um, that so that gets made into tyrosine. Tyrosine then gets made is is a is a precursor to dopamine. Okay. So that can be helpful to get those things in your diet. Um, maybe I don't know if that's like scientifically proven, but it is a precursor, so that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Also, L-dopa is a precursor to dopamine. Okay. It's also so tyrosine is also a precursor to adrenaline and norepinephrine, mm-hmm. and also dopamine is a precursor to adrenaline. And norepinephrine, I believe, as well. So okay. those it's all kind of tied in play, right? Like I mentioned earlier, that angsty jubilation you have when you have something coming up that's big, mm-hmm. you might be releasing some adrenaline. You know, I'm feeling you feel a little bit like let's go get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And dopamine might actually have something to do with releasing that. Okay, I don't know a whole lot about that, but that's, I find it interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, and L-dopa, which is a precursor to dopamine as well, uh, is actually found in fermented foods. Okay, sauerkraut, uh, kefir. Voss, uh, yogurt. Interesting. Yeah. Just hypothetical scenario, you're a holistic nutritionist. Let's say there's a, an example of someone comes to you, they're addicted to something. Maybe they're addicted to pornography. And they're coming to you as a holistic nutritionist.